Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. One year ago, on January 15, 2022, a gunman entered Congregation Beth Israel, a reformed temple in Colleyville, Texas. For 11 hours, four people were held hostage, including the rabbi. But because of their security training, the hostages escaped and helped authorities end the standoff. The years leading up to that hostage situation had already been a frightening time for the Jewish community. Colleyville only amplified it. In fact, AJC's anticipated state of anti-Semitism report, scheduled to come out next month, found that more than half of American Jews who heard about Colleyville felt less safe. Joining us to talk about how we move on from what happened a year ago is Bradley Orsini, Senior National Security Advisor for the Secure Community Network, the official security organization of the Jewish community in North America, and Jeff Cohen, one of those former hostages who has since become president of Congregation Beth Israel. Gentlemen, welcome to People of the Pod. How are you doing? Thank you for having us. Jeff, I want to start with you, but the last thing I want you to do is relive or rehash what happened that terrible day. I'd really like to know what brought you to Beth Israel to begin with, why you joined. I'm also hoping you can share a bit of how January 15th reshaped your approach to Jewish life over the past year. And instead of backing away, you took on a pretty significant leadership role. Why? Well, I sort of had to. I had been vice president, and uh, when our president resigned, he, quite frankly, was a little bit burned out from all the work that one has to do as president and other things that he had been doing for a while. It felt to me to become president. I don't mind being president, but it wasn't a, a position I sought or anything like that. But, you know, it does give me a little bit of a, let's call it a platform to make sure that we do continue to have the training, that we do continue to do those things to harden the facility and to make folks generally aware so that we have a safer community. You know, the FBI identified the suspect as Malik Faisal Akram, a 44-year-old man from the United Kingdom who sought the release of a terrorist from a nearby federal prison. Did the experience change your perspective on the sources of anti-Semitism, who might actually target a suburban Texas synagogue and why? Well, you're hitting on something that really needs to be pulled on. Everyone thinks it won't happen here. And quite frankly, when we did our training, we did training that was provided by SCN and some others. But the training that we went through is about awareness, situational awareness, being knowledgeable about where the exits are whenever you walk into any building. And the reason all of these things are so important is not because we expect someone to come from 5,000 miles away and then to sleep out on one of the coldest nights of the year to come in to attack us. That was really never on our radar. Our biggest worries, tornadoes, what do we do for those? Obviously, you know, an active shooter is something that can happen, but we were far more worried about, you know, a fire starting or the room getting filled with smoke due to a grease fire in the kitchen than anything else. But the value of these training is that you start looking around. 
you start knowing where things are and you get yourself ready. This is the kind of thing that really every person who comes into a synagogue needs to go through because these are things that you need to be aware of and you need to be thinking about these at a time. It's not just for the rabbi. As a matter of fact, you said that Rabbi Charlie had training. Absolutely true. He had had a lot of training. But one of the other hostages who has served as a para-rabbinic in other congregations, he had had a lot of training. And then both me and the remaining hostage had also gone through the training. At that point, we'd each gone through it once. At this point, we've each gone through it three or four times, different locations, things like that, to help give a better perspective. And as a result, we're a little bit better prepared if something else were to happen. Not that we expect it, but it's just like getting in your car, okay? Nobody gets in their car and says, I think I'm going to have an accident today, so I'll put on my seatbelt. No, you put on your seatbelt, well, partly because it's the law, but mostly because you want to protect yourself in the unlikely event that you have an accident. And this training is the same kind of thing. Bradley, I'm curious what you're hearing or what you heard immediately after Colleyville from houses of worship and Jewish institutions. I mean, did it heighten the fears? Every time we have an incident in our community, something is a significant at Colleyville, something like Pittsburgh, Poway, Jersey City, Muncie, we always see an uptick in request for training. What can we do as a community to combat these incidents? And contextually, in 2021, we trained at SCN over 17,000 people across the United States in a calendar year. Fast forward to 2022, and the days after the Colleville hostage incident, we got requests on a daily basis, one after another. And in calendar year 2022, we trained over 40,000 members of our community across the United States. So an incident really brings that to our the front of our brain to really say, what can we do? And synagogues, all our communal organizations were requesting, we heard training saves lives. And we know that from Pittsburgh, training saves lives. From Colleville, Jeff is here today. I get to look at Jeff today because he had that wherewithal to take not just one, not just two, but several trains. And so for our community, if it's offered, take it. Think about it. We want you to be situationally aware. It's not to scare our community. It's really to empower our community. And we are now living in the most complex and dynamic time of threats to our community. So what do we do? We have to build a resilient community. And the only way we could build a resilient community is to have an aware community. We empower them with the training. Coupled with both of those, we will build a resilient. We know that in the last six months alone, we've referred at SCN through our real-time actionable intelligence network that is staffed 24 hours a day. We referred over 200 individuals to law enforcement that threaten our community to help mitigate that next attack. So what our community could do is one, be aware, be aware of their surroundings, understand what the threat picture may look like in their area, but also with the training, be situationally aware to report that anomalous behavior, report it to law enforcement, report it to our Jewish communal security apparatus or SCN duty desk at any time. 
Secondly, get trained. Third, get trained. And when you're done getting trained, get trained again. When you say the term threat picture, what do you mean by that? Are, are you talking about understanding the sources of anti-Semitism, the motives behind it, what's fueling it, or is that something else? All of the above. What does it look like in my area? So nationally, let's take nationally and move in. What is our biggest threat to the Jewish community right now? We can readily say it's that homegrown domestic extremism, domestic terrorism that we look at every day, whether it's on social media platforms, whether it's a physical assault, whether it's graffiti in our buildings. But we monitor that internet. We monitor a deep, dark web for identifying behaviors, identifying anomalies that might threaten our community. That threat picture has only increased, unfortunately, over the last few years, and it has not slowed down. That's not to scare our community, that's to make our community aware. And we really need to understand that if you're in Colleville in the Fort Worth area, or you're in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, what is the threat picture in my area? What white supremacist groups might be out there? How do we engage with law enforcement to understand that? So we can then advise our congregants in our particular shul or in our JCC to understand this is the threat dynamic in our particular area as well, which is really important to understand for our community. Jeff, if you could go back and talk about when you first joined Congregation Beth Israel, kind of why did you join? What were your expectations? And how has that evolved over the years? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So you know, I'm not exactly sure how old our, our synagogue is. It's 20-ish years old. It started as a small chavara. It started, like many do, as just a place for Jewish folks to meet and have a meal and whatnot. It became a synagogue some years later, and that's when we joined. But over time, you know, we were members for a couple of years, and then we kind of drifted away. My wife passed away in 2016, and I needed to have a funeral and called people who I used to know from the community and got realigned with the synagogue then. And of course, need to say Kaddish. So again, I was going regularly. I became very involved. I joined the Religious Practice Committee. I got a spot on the board. I became far more active than I had been, just doing a variety of things. Uh, a couple of years ago, the president asked me to be the vice president. So I asked what does the vice president do? Whatever I need you to do, which is almost literally what's in our bylaws. So I took on a lot of little projects, and I'm not going to say that they were easy or small, but you know, it's a lot of little things that just helped with the day-to-day -day running and our big fundraiser. And I got more and more involved. And since then, I've been on the search committee, co-chaired that, chaired our security committee where we rewrote our guidelines. All of this is before our event. And then a couple of months ago, I, I became president. And now I'm talking to just about everybody on a daily basis. It's like having two full-time jobs. It's a good thing to be involved. It's great to have a community that's this active. It's great to have a community that is involved with the greater community. We don't live in a shtetl. And we haven't lived in a shtetl for a very long time. We live in a small community, or really a bunch of small communities, where we all get involved. Our synagogue is on the same street with a 
a Catholic church at one end, an Episcopal church on the other. And there's the Baptists and the United Methodist, and just up the street is uh, Church of Christ, and not very far away is a mosque and a masjid. And we all get together because, you know what, we all live in the same neighborhood. So it makes sense for us to get together. And those are things that don't happen by accident. One needs to be involved to build a community, or in many cases, rebuild a community, because we lost two plus years of COVID and everybody kind of drifted apart and drifted into their own thing. So I know I went a little beyond just, well, how did you get involved? But there you go. Oh, you know, I'm sorry to hear about the loss of your wife. I mean, we say, may her memory be for a blessing. I think it already certainly has been. You talked about the need to recite Kaddish and that bringing you and drawing you to Beth Israel. I'm curious how the rituals, the prayers, the community helped you recover from what happened this past year. As Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker says, we were lucky. We don't have to say Kaddish on the anniversary. You know, most others do. But that doesn't mean that we're all healed. We're healing. We're not healed. We still have people who don't want to drop their kids off at religious school. We have people who, when we have a public event or an event in a public space, don't want to go, even though it's not like we're hanging a big banner out front, because they're worried about an attack. And I'm not trying to belittle anybody's feelings. These are real, and the threats are real, and we have to deal with them. And it's hard. It's very hard. When you fall down on the pavement and scrape your knee, it heals, but there's a scar there. And when you bang it six months, a year, two years later, you feel that twinge. Well, that's where we are. And we're going to feel that forever. Not only are we changed emotionally, but we're changed how we have to do things. We did not have a security officer come when we had expected a small number of people. We used the power of hello. It's a good thing. It works. But we said hello to our attacker. We talked with him. He was jovial and friendly, made eye contact, wasn't sweating profusely or any of the things that we all learn about, which are the typical signs. But yet, you know, he did have a gun and a backpack. We've had to change our protocol. We've had to get used to having an armed peace officer sitting in the hallway with the door open to the sanctuary where we can see him or her and he can see us. To some, that's reassuring. To some, that's unsettling. To me, it's a little bit of both, quite frankly. And to be perfectly honest, on Rosh Hashanah, when I was sitting there and a couple of emergency vehicles went by with sirens blaring. You know, I did have a jump back. The hairs on the back of my neck stood up, and I became hyper-aware for a moment before I could calm down. But prior to the event, going to the synagogue, going and especially on Saturday morning, where I could sit down with my private thoughts, where there wasn't a crowd, where I could just kind of unwind and get that Shabbat Shalom that we talk about, yeah, that's gone. You know, it's happened perhaps once in the year, 
but I'm normally working security at the door. I'm making sure that everything is good and safe. And I am at the door to be the first line if somebody were to get by the officer, because that's where I feel a need to be. But things are what they are. It's not what you want, but that's how I've been changed. I can say for others, it's similar. You know, it'll never go back to January 14th. It just won't. These concerns are very real. I live in New Jersey. There was a serious threat late last year. And my husband and I debated whether to go to synagogue on Friday night. Our children had a special service they had been looking forward to. We didn't know whether to go ahead and go through with it. We did. But I know the rabbi and the congregation leaders struggled with how to encourage people to show up. I'm curious, Bradley, what advice do you give or do you give advice to congregations who are struggling with attendance and convincing congregants that it's good to come to temple? Yeah, and I think that's a real fear our community faces every day. And listening to Jeff and how he explained it, it hurts my heart to hear people that are contemplating whether or not they can come to shul and pray because there's threats out there. Our job really as a community now is to understand that, understand that threat picture and dynamic, and what can we do as a community? And I truly believe what we could do as a community is to go on the offensive. We can't hide from these threats. We can't bury our heads in the sand and lift them up one day and they're gonna go away. They haven't gone away in over 4,000 years. They're not going to go away right now. What we need to do is empower our community to make them feel comfortable to come back to shul, to do everything like Jeff is doing. You know, have that safety committee, have those groups of folks that are out there where you're inside praying that we have people that are looking out for our well-being and our safety. And I think it's really important for our community to understand that. And I think the more aware our community is, the more they're trained, the more they kind of, and I don't want to say embrace the threat. We don't want to embrace the threat, but we have to understand it so we really can react and and live a normal life. I tell people all the time, I don't want people to be afraid to be Jewish, to be afraid to wear that Star of David around their neck. We want to be a proud community, and we take our community back by going to shul by praying, by living the best Jewish life we can live. And that's how we are going to win. Yes, there's threats out there. Absolutely. But we as a community need to understand that, be aware, and mitigate that next attack. Even though we read about these things every day, the probabilities are very low. And that's really, really important. There are, what, 330 million people in the U.S. of that 99.99999% are probably good people who would never think of being anti-Semitic, who are not racist, who are not a threat. There's a small number that are, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, at some point. But what we have to do is be prepared. And, you know, what I did and what we did over 10 and a half hours, we were in there 11 hours, half hour before the attack, and then 10 and a half hours of the hostage situation. You know, 
we were constantly watching. We were doing things actively to keep him calm. We moved. I started it and pulled others toward me. We moved toward the exit. And when I say started, within the first two and a half minutes, I had moved from the center to fairly close to one of the exits on purpose. And then throughout the day, getting the others to be closer so that we had that opportunity. Opportunities don't just come, you have to make them. When Rabbi Charlie saw that he had put the gun down or couldn't get to it easily, he yelled, run. Now, if we hadn't been just 10 feet from the door, it wouldn't have been as easy for us to escape. If he hadn't tossed the chair, we probably still would have gotten out, but that definitely bought a little extra time. And these are the things that we learned and were able to do. It's not hard. It's hard to stay calm for 11 hours, but you do what you got to do. Bradley, I was going to ask, have there been other incidents, other scenarios that maybe haven't made the news but they are success stories. They are stories of a congregation taking care of itself and removing itself from harm's way, maybe not as dramatically as the members of Beth Israel. The things our community hears is always those worst case scenarios. What our community doesn't get enough of is understanding that we're mitigating threats on a daily basis. And no, not as dramatic as a hostage taking or a shooting on the other end. It is a potential threat to our community directed by an individual that's been identified, arrested, and mitigated. We see that on a daily basis. And I really want to talk just for a minute about something Jeff said. He is absolutely right. These incidents like Colville, like Tree of Life, like Poway, like Jersey City, like Muncie, New York, are an anomaly. They are so far removed from what happens on a daily basis. It just doesn't happen. However, one thing our community has to understand is it can happen anywhere, anytime. And so when we talk about training, we prepare at the highest levels. And the, why we focus on an active shooter, whether it's run, hide, fight, it gives us the tool to handle anything from the most serious event on down. But yes, our community unfortunately is under attack every day by this vitriol we see on the internet, on the dark web, the deep web, right out in the open. And so I think for our community, they need to understand that, embrace it, not be afraid of it, but help mitigate that next attack. And I think you know, we see so much of that on a daily basis and we don't report on our successes. We just don't. That's just not how law enforcement and security works. That's what's expected. But with our community, everybody has to understand that it could happen here. The difference is if you're prepared, you're able to react like Jeff did. If you're not prepared, you are not going to react. And that's part of what we teach that that mental mind mapping that we go through and how our brain works. Jeff talked about being in that synagogue for almost 11 hours. For 10 of those hours, 10 and a half of those hours, his brain was on high alert. I assume Jeff was exhausted for days after that incident about how his brain was on such high alert for the entire time. That will wear you out. And so he did exactly what he was trained, and he's here today. So I think we can't overstate that enough. 
Brad, you're offering a webinar on security measures next week, right? January 19th? Yes. Next week on January 19th at 1 p.m. Eastern, we're going to do a look back at Colville. And we're going to have experts on that were crisis negotiators, how to survive a hostage situation. Now, that is the most remote thing that can happen to our community. But we want to give our community the knowledge of what Jeff went through from our crisis negotiators on what to do, how to react. Wonderful. Well, we will include details about that in our show notes for listeners who want to participate. Before we go, Jeff, I want to turn to you and ask, what do you hope the Jewish community at large takes away from what you went through? There's a lot of things that are going on, and there's a lot of badness. But it doesn't start with someone flying 5,000 miles, buying a gun on the street and coming in and attacking. It generally starts with more mundane things, those small, racist, homophobic, anti-Semitic remarks that some people call trolling, others just call being rude. But we in America have been taught for years, what do you do? Well, ignore them. And what do people do? Well, you know, you cringe, you roll your eyes, you look away. We've got to stop that. We have to change what is acceptable. And that's the only way that's going to change. So what I have been taking as my soapbox issue is, look, when a neighbor, a friend, Uncle Bobby spouts off with something, instead of letting it go, we need to challenge it. Wait, wait, what did you say? Make him repeat it. Now, most people, again, remember that 99.9999% of Americans are good people. And when they get called out on something like this, they'll go, oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. And you move on. But those that continue with it or say it, you know, if it was an anti-Semitic, Jews control the world, Jews control the media, Jews control the banks, Jews control the government, which are things that Akram said to us that day, was that ingrained in him. When you say it, you, you challenge it. You know, these old tropes, they come from a pamphlet written in Tsarist Russia in the 1890s at a time when the economy was bad and the Tsar was trying to prevent revolution. So he you know, would rather we hated the Jews than that. And then it was picked up by the communists. And then it was picked up by Henry Ford during the Depression. If they still respond, hey, ah, you're just too woke, you're being overly sensitive. There's only one proper response. I'm sorry, that language is not allowed here. You need to leave now. And when Aunt Betty or even mom says, oh, no, 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 it's not that big a deal. You need to say, yes, it really is that big a deal. You need to go. And you're not trying to change old Uncle Bobby. You're never going to change him. But you want your kids, your neighbor's kids, all your other nieces and nephews to see that that behavior isn't allowed. That's not right. It's not polite. It's not funny. It can keep them from becoming that overused term of radicalized. So I challenge everyone to do it. It's not easy. It goes against our green. It goes against everything we've been taught. But we have to do it. Well, Jeff, Brad, thank you both so much for, for joining us. And I hope that people who are trying to muster the courage to speak up like that, like what you're recommending, Jeff. I hope they think about you, hear your voice, and think about what you went through. And I really appreciate you sharing all of that with us today. Thanks. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.